Hello folks, Jeff Salzman here and welcome to The Daily Evolver. In this podcast, we've spliced together the audio from three new Facebook live videos that I've done over the last couple weeks. And I'd never done them before, but I find that I really like them because they're giving me the chance to comment on current events in real time. You know, I can do a 10 or 15 minute video pretty quick. So, okay, the first one is called Trump is Irredeemably Red. And this is where we discover the one thing that Donald Trump likes even better than winning. And that is just plain old fighting. Win or lose. The second segment, and each of these are about 15 minutes, the second one is titled Loyalty versus Law, where I contrast Trump's pre-modern view of government, which is patronage and loyalty, and the modern view of government, which is about laws and bureaucracy. And I love the definition of bureaucracy, government by desk. And this is indeed the deep state that Donald Trump is picking his biggest fight with. And the third segment is titled The Uncivil War, where I talk about how every developmental shift in culture is accompanied by great conflict. And that's true of the great political polarization of today, where the culture war is less about left versus right as it is about the deep antipathy between traditionalism and postmodernism. All right, so before we start, let me just also say a quick uh, aside to those of you who are faithful listeners of this podcast. Uh, You may hear some of the same ideas that I've been expounding on uh, for the last year or so, but there's a lot of new stuff too, you know, current newsy stuff. But I am reiterating some of the basic themes of this podcast because Facebook presents a significant new audience. And, um, you know, I want to get them up to speed. So, all right, here we are with segment number one, Trump is irredeemably red. So today I want to just share what's on my mind in the political arena. And um, I've been gone for a few days and a little bit off the grid. And I got back here today, it's Tuesday, and... um, I, I realized as I watched the news and sort of absorbed what's going on that it seems in the last few days that the worm has really turned uh, for Donald Trump and that we actually now have an answer to that vexing question. Is Donald Trump crazy like a fox or is he just crazy? And the consensus seems to be at least for modernists, postmodernists were already there, but for modernists that, yeah, he is just plain crazy. I mean, the Wall Street Journal today said that it was in, in their editorial, and of course, that's the big house organ of the conservative movement, the Wall Street Journal. Uh, they said it was apparent that he couldn't stop his self-destructive behaviors. The Washington Post said he was in a downward spiral this morning. On Morning Joe, uh, in the first 20-minute segment, they described him with words like personality disorder, crazy, out of control, a man in decline. And um, so I think it's mainstreamed this idea now that he is um, unfit uh, mentally and emotionally and characterologically as well. And I think what did it was this tweeting that he did about the travel ban, which he was warned would actually hurt his case and hurt the chances of the uh, ban passing. And then what kind of a guy does that anyway? And uh, you realize that actually with Donald Trump, it's not even about winning as much as it is just plain old fighting. And, um, and so the question is, and this is a question I've asked people in interviews in my podcast, uh, you know, people who are psychologists and so forth. Uh, do we think that he has a, a real diagnosable personality disorder or is he, as it appears to me, just 
using developmental theory, is he red? Is he uh, at a warrior stage of development? And, um, you know, in Integral, we talk about really basically four levels of development that are really being, you know, extant in our culture right now. And one is the traditionalists, and those are the conservative, social conservative Republicans, uh, the modernists who are secular, uh, but still largely Republican, the, the business people are Republican, the secular um, academics are more liberal. And then the liberal is the green um, postmodern stage of development. And this warrior stage or the red stage actually comes before traditionalism or what we call the amber stage. And it's an interesting world. Uh, and it's very interesting to see such a, uh, what I think is a pretty pure example of it in a, you know, guy who can function in a center of gravity orange uh, and postmodern world. Um, I've made the case for some of this in my blog, and you can go hear, you know, a more uh, elaborated, um, you know, argument there. But just to sort of get the feel for, you know, what is that um, world space like, that red world space? And first of all, it's, we talk a lot about the post-truth world. Uh, there is a post-truth world. That's green, um, past, you know, the modernists. Uh, mo the modernists are really about truth and fact and scientific explanations and logic and so forth. That's an, an orange phenomena. Earlier than that, we have truth that comes from the holy books. But before that, in the warrior stage, it's actually pre-truth. There really aren't, you know, ways of um, negotiating truth claims other than power and who is more powerful in one way or the other. And um, so, you know, we, we all have a red strata. And we all had a visit, uh, and, and, and for many of us, an extended stay at Red. And you know, typically, it's when you're two years old, uh, and you want what you want, and if you don't get it, there's hell to pay. And you don't really take other people's needs into account. Impulsive, volatile, short-term thinking, egocentric. It has a recapitulation as you're sort of born into adulthood and early adolescence. And this red strata is where Trump lives. And in terms of human history, it's actually not only pre-truth, it's pre-rules. It's the world before the Ten Commandments, actually. It's the world uh, where not only was it okay to steal and, you know, cover your neighbor's wife and, and take her if you could, um, you'd be irresponsible not to. Uh, you'd be irresponsible not to get every advantage you can for yourself and your people. That's how it works. There is no morality as we think of it. There's actually no guilt. Guilt comes online at amber traditionalism. Uh, what we have at Red Warrior stage is shame. And it's a whole different ballgame. That's where it's honor and looking good and bling and, you know, um, Trump, you know, that palace that he has in the sky um, is just, um, you know, direct from red and, and um, the, that sort of uh, uh, autocratic aesthetic. Um, I always think of when I think of getting in, uh, in touch with red, there's a a saying, I did a, a podcast on Saudi Arabia a while back, and I was talking about, you know, what's one of the things that's so fascinating about Saudi Arabia is that it's gone from literally being a red, nomadic, Bedouin culture to, you know, modern and postmodern in 80 years. Um, and, uh, and there's a saying in, in the Bedouin culture, uh, which again is that, exemplifies that red warrior culture. And the saying is this, me, my brother, and my cousin against the stranger. Me and my brother against my cousin. Me against my brother.
And so that is that world. And um, there's, you know, for Trump, it's actually hard for him to think about the judicial system as anything other than a, 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 a boxing ring um, or a, you know, a world of, um, um, I see people like coming on or something. So I'm sorry, I'm a little distracted. I'm new to this. But it's like um, the, the Judge Curiel uh, thing that happened this summer where he said that Judge Curiel, who was a, a judge who was born in Indiana of Mexican descent, that he couldn't be fair in judging the border wall because, uh, or the travel ban, I guess it was at that time, uh, because he was a Mexican. And, you know, that's just obvious that that would trump, you know, rules and laws that still are, you know, not really formed and online yet in the red psyche. I mean, think back when you're a little kid or when you're even in that sort of teenage years, you're, 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 not only rules feel like, get your hands off of me. You know, you're killing me. You're suffocating me. And that's Trump, you know. Um, another uh, aspect of that world space is sort of a, just, you know, living to fight uh, that in, in, in vengeance. Uh, let's not forget that one of the things that comes online with monotheism, when we have, you know, a transcendent God in the sky who, uh, who says to his people, vengeance is mine. You know, you don't have to worry about vengeance. No more of these blood feuds. That's over. I take care of everything now. Uh, when you die, you're, you get your reward or your punishment. So that's all offline. You don't have to worry about that anymore. And that's a huge developmental stage forward um, and, uh, in history, into traditionalism. But before that, you absolutely do fight back. And if you don't, Again, you're being irresponsible to yourself and your progeny, which is what you're really most worried about. Uh, in Sunday's New York Times, Maureen Dowd, uh, her column about Trump, uh, Trump stomps the world or something was the title of it. Anyway, she talked about how when he uh, was at Mar-a-Lago, you know, just moved there, whatever it was, 15, 20 years ago, he was being interviewed and he pointed out, I'll, I'll read it, he said, Trump, she said, Trump once pointed out a dozen six-foot-high speakers by the pool at Mar-a-Lago blasting classic rock and said, you know, when I moved here to Palm Springs, nobody wanted me around. And I love cranking this music as loud as I can because it bugs the heck out of all of these so-and-sos, and I love it. So, you know, he's the guy who blasts music at you if he's bad at you. I mean, that's adolescent, you know. Uh, now, it's not all bad. Uh, uh, there's a positive side to red. Well, red, first of all, I mean, it's perfectly appropriate to a two-year-old um, who's just learning that, yes, I am somebody separate and I have volition and I have needs and I can assert myself. That's an appropriate stage of development. You want that. Um, and again, as you're sort of born into adulthood and early adolescence, you want to feel who you are and feel powerful and sort of break out of that conformity. Um, so, you know, a good red is absolutely the life of the party. You know, bigger than life, uh, charisma, um, and, you know, and, it feels good and it's magnetic, it's charisma, you know, it, for, for people uh, who have that kind of personal power. Um, they are, as we often said about Steve Jobs, a reality distortion machine. And um, I wanna uh, play a excerpt from uh, Morning Joe. This is uh, Joe Scarborough talking about a lunch he had with Trump during the first week of his administration before they became mortal enemies, which they are now, apparently. Uh, but here he talks about this sort of red behavior in its sort of positive, convivial 
reality distortion sense. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting. And we've all been in this situation in one way or the other, one time or the other. So uh, have a listen here. And I'm going to put a little something over the screen so I don't distract you. It's about a minute, 10 seconds or something. I remember the chaotic first week, Nick. Meek and I went to lunch with the president in the White House oh my gosh. about 10 days in. And you could hear the protesters outside. It was the executive order that had caused mass chaos across the world, and certainly at the airports. Protests were in the street. It was 24-7 news coverage. It was an ugly way to start the week. And I remember uh, Donald asking me, so how do you think the first week went? And I said, well, I like the union guys. You brought the union guys in and talked about making the steel pipes American. I mean, that's, that could be transformative. That's what, what about the, I said, it's been really, it's been kind of rocky. He spent the next hour and a half saying to everybody that walked into the room, hey, can you believe Joe doesn't think this was a great week? And it became a joke. Which include Michael Flynn, which include Ryan's people. Flynn kind of standing at the door hovering, holding a book. Everybody that would come in, and it struck me, just what you're saying, Willie, nobody around him had told him that he had the most chaotic, crappy first week in the history of modern presidency. Nobody had told him. He was genuinely shocked. Look, the most powerful. Yeah, so, you know, again, we've all been in that situation with the person who distorts reality, and it's really hard to go up against them. And uh, he appears to just be the epitome of that, just sort of the, you know, the King Kong of that. And it's clearly worked for him. Uh, as as the, the you know just creating chaos and keeping all eyeballs on himself again very red warlord behavior keeping everybody on edge who's going to get whacked you know mafia boss kind of behavior uh, but again it's pre legal it's pre logical it's pre truth and it is um, you know again got this guy. Uh, you know, a couple billion bucks, uh, you know, and um, the presidency <laughs> of the United States of America. Sorry, world, you know, oops. So anyway, um, that's the case. And I, 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 I told that we want to keep these short, and it's at 16 minutes. So uh, there's this, this is the case for Trump as red. Um, I will come back on uh, in the next couple days and uh, talk about how uh, there's the case for that he's just plain old sick. And there's probably some combination of the two. Uh, but um, boy, where this goes, nobody knows. But um, I do trust, uh, just to put uh, your mind maybe in a little more ease. I mean, I don't know. What do I know? But I do personally trust that the modern system that we set up, or the Founding Fathers did, um, is exactly what is called for, and it appears to be uh, rising to the challenge. So um, I think he will be corralled and probably, um, you know, I can't see him um, uh, finishing his term, but who knows. All right, well, that was segment number one. Now, segment number two, which was recorded just when Trump was trial ballooning the idea of firing the special prosecutor, Robert Mueller. So here's segment two, loyalty versus law. Yeah, so I just wanted to share some thoughts that I have about what's going on in Washington that, of course, there's such a, always a, interesting developmental lesson to be learned and seen in, in these dramas. And this one is around the possible firing of Robert Mueller, who is the ex-CIA director, I'm sorry, ex-FBI director, who is running the investigation into Trump's dealings and the, with the Russians and so forth. 
And um, yesterday, Trump trial ballooned the idea that he might fire him and, and created a big firestorm. And, uh, you know, today the White House seems to be backing off, but uh, who knows if Donald Trump, is, I don't think it's entirely clear that Donald Trump doesn't prefer to run towards fires. So we'll see. Uh, but it does harken back to last week, last Thursday. I mean, can you believe it was only last Thursday when Comey testified uh, for the Senate Intelligence Committee and he testified that Trump had cleared the room and asked him to um, basically pledge his loyalty. He said, I expect your loyalty. And um, so, you know, th that's really the crux of the thing is that the president of the United States, the leader, asks for loyalty from the chief law enforcement officer of the country, of the FBI. And loyalty in law is a fulcrum of development, uh, and it's a fulcrum politically between the um, uh, pre-modern governments that go way back 10,000 years or so, uh, and modern governments that have been in place for a couple hundred so, um, um, hang on just one second. Namali's here to pick up her dog. Hey, Namali, Duncan's in the back. I'm doing a Facebook Live video. Okay. <laughs> She's the one who has been prodding me to do these. So, anyway. Um, so, yeah, so that's that fulcrum between pre modern and modern cultures. And it's not unusual in uh, pre modern cultures to you know, the whole system is based around a person where you pledge your faithful obedience to the big chief, the warlord, the king, the boss. It actually can be companies that run like that, that where the boss is running like a fiefdom. It can be actually functional at an early stage of development for a company. And, and certainly was for um, humans. I mean, we were arising or trying to arise out of um, you know, millennia of tribal magic consciousness, you know, that pr not just pre-modern, but prehistoric in the sense that it was uh, before agriculture, before writing. And, you know, in that stage, and, and there's a lot we can talk about that stage, and Integral has great insight, I think, into that stage. But, you know, basically it was more instinctual. I mean, it was more, uh, people weren't really fully, um, um, uh, in, individuated from the tribe and from each other. Uh, it was uh, sort of egalitarian in the sense that the people naturally did what was appropriate to make the tribe healthy. And um, so, but you know, we get bored. <laughs> Humans get bored. And uh, so we wanted more, you know, we wanted more protection from the elements, comfort, reliable food, you know, uh, Noble savagery only looks good if you disregard the toothaches and the likes. So anyway, plus there's just built into this system the, the appropriate urge to complexity. It's like atoms to molecules. Uh, human beings want to complexify. We want to get bigger that, and have bigger systems. That is the history of humanity. Um, ever greater systems where bigger groups of people are included. Uh, you know, there's still an enemy on the other side, but it's a bigger um, circle. Uh, so for this to happen out of tribal, it has to be around a strong leader, a, a strong man or, you know, a big daddy of some sort. And uh, a super loyal inner core and a loyal ring of enforcers and and you got that, and then you're ready to move into red, into that warrior empire stage of development. Uh, and the only reason it happens that way is because there's no other option. There are no institutions to build around. There's customs, but, you know, we're tired of them, and we can bring them forward. We defang them and bring them forward. Uh, there weren't even ideologies, you know. There was just somebody to follow and be faithful to. And, you know, and, and it's more sophisticated forms. You even love them. I mean, th you know, think of God, you know. You, you love him or he beats the crap out of you. <laughs> He's the, the great autocrat. Sorry, God. Um, 
But, you know, your job at that point in development is to make sure that the leader is successful. If he or she wins, you win. And the closer you are to the leader, the more goodies you have. So that's how you maximize your position. And you suck up just like Trump's cabinet did yesterday. I mean, I don't know if you saw it, but it was, you know, to the modern and postmodern mind particularly, it's just, you know, revulsive and cringeworthy as the Trump, as the cabinet members went around from person to person and said how honored they were to be working for, you know, such a consequential president and how blessed they felt and so forth, which in its way, I'm sure Obama heard his share of that sort of thing too, but Trump sits there takes it like, you know, it's not embarrassing. It isn't for him, you know. Uh, and, um, you know, so then he comes on and talks about how it's the greatest president yet, the greatest presidency yet, um, except perhaps FDR, who had a depression to deal with. But otherwise, more, more legislation than anybody else. And it's just, you know, not only not true, it's, you know, it's, it's um, delusional, you know. So anyway, or it's skillful in a red world. And that's what we got, at least in, you know, the dimensions of the Trump head. And that is a rule of leaders, not laws. And um, as I said, in its proper place, it leads us out of the swamps, out of the jungles, into you know, great empires over time, thousands of years, with complicated, you know, um, all kinds of you know, systems of patronage and aristocracy and all that sort of thing. Uh, but about 300 years ago in Europe, after centuries of wars and plagues and witch burnings, uh, that worldview began to play itself out. And, um, and actually what happens is that the, the stage of um, development, you know, that warrior stage or the empire stage does get successful enough that people have the free time and energy to look further. And, you know, there's again that procreant urge, we wanna look further, we want what's next, we're tired of this. And so uh, what's further was not a continuation of empire building, uh, it, it was, a completely new and unexpected turn. Uh, instead of investing more in that structure, we just shrugged it off. We just said that no more of this oppression, no more of the cruelties of this, of the inequality. It's, it becomes morally repulsive. And, um, you know, that's the goodness of God. You know, God doesn't let us get bored, but God doesn't want us to get bored. We'd be too much trouble. Um, so at this point, he whispers into our ears this new revelation where he says, hey, you know, I really didn't make that guy the king or the pope or the potentate. There's no special blessings that I'm giving out. You have just the same line to me as they do. And that is, you know, a, 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 an amazing message. And that there's even a second part to it that's even more devastating. And he says, in fact, I may not even be God. I may just be a voice in your head. So, wow. So, you know, devastating, but also electrifying because, you know, we're on to something new. And so we figured we, you know, the myths have run themselves out. So it's time to get rational and to realize that the world is knowable um, through something other than revelation, divine revelation and some divine book. That we can experiment, we can use logic, we can use science, we can use communication, we can you know, do the whole thing that created modernity, the spectacularly tangible results of modernity. And this new revelation, of course, extended into the political realm, where, you know, it's just part of this miracle of 
development. You know, why do things grow? You know, um, institutions that were built on loyalty just became intolerable. And we began the project of wringing them out of the system. And, you know, that's uh, imperfect and it's a gradual, you know, in a certain sense, there's a certain punctuated equilibrium to it too. I mean, we have the French Revolution, uh, which, you know, maybe too much karma in Europe at the time, they didn't quite take. But in America, when there was virgin soil for really anything above tribal, um, it took, you know, and we started this project of rule by law rather than rule by men. And, um, and that has been the project of America and it's uh, imperfect. Uh, but, um, you know, at this point, what we now call corruption was what we called government in the previous stage where it was you know, what tribe are you part of? What aristocracy are you a part of? You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Um, you know, let's just do this. Um, that is seen now as corruption. And that is, you know, the progress of, um, of, um, of modernity and the rule of law. But it is, um, you know, quite distressing to the pre-modern mind, to the Trumpian mind, and to his 30 plus percent of the population who are also, you know, in, in important ways, you know, they may be nuclear scientists, but they have a self-sense, they have a, a, a moral and, and um, a sort of uh, interpersonal um, sense of themselves that it's far more comfortable in the, the traditional and pre-modern um, stage. And, you know, for these people, um, you know, there's a downside. In fact, we can all see the downside of the rule of law. When we move from a system of patronage to a system, who's in my yard? When we move from a system of, of patronage to a system of, um, of the rule of law, uh, that is the birth of bureaucracy. And we, you know, end up with the rule of rules, where we have these big institutions where everybody is folded and spindled and mutilated. And, you know, there's no exceptions and you have to get, you know, 10 signatures and, you know, it's run by bureaucrats. You know, I love bureaucracy. It's, it's a French for the rule of desks. And that's what it is, these desks, all these desks, and we have to navigate them. And the people who sit at the desks, their incentive is to not rock the boat. Um, and in fact, as with all of us in our various professions, we want to build business. And so build more bureaucracy. bureaucracy. And, um, and it doesn't have that you know, tension that comes from having to compete and so forth. And so we end up with a system where you know, it's the only place that I stand in line for 30 minutes. Uh, in my life is now at the downtown Boulder post office because it's not efficient. But in its historical emergence, it was not meant to be, you know, and that's what's so frustrating to Trump and his people is that they want to make America great again. I mean, I don't think Trump has a great understanding of what that means. And I think the people who do, like Matt Bannon, may have second, third, and fourth thoughts about how they've, you know, attached their wagon to his star. But nevertheless, he gets the music of it. And it's, you know, the bureaucracy for him is the deep state. These are the professional bureaucrats. And, um, and they just have to, to fight that. That is, that's their enemy, because it's going to, um, you know, um, diminish his rule of just plain old leadership and autocracy which is where he really lives. And um, so, you know, we have this, um, this uh, sort of tragic uh, display of him trashing Robert Mueller, the, you know, second large, longest serving FBI director in history. And, um, you know, it's just um, somebody who, so, who was, you know, one of the most respected people in Washington. But that's almost, you know, Red meat, 
because Washington is the thing that they're trying to go up against, or at least this deep state. There's really two sides of this, you know, what we call Washington. One of them is, you know, this professional bureaucracy that it is against Trump. I mean, these are basically liberals and, you know, they, they, they don't like Trump. And so they, 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 I, there is a, you know, he is going to get extra pushback uh, from the bureaucracy. Um, hang on. And the, and the other side of the street, and I'm almost done, uh, is what we're calling the swamp or what uh, Trump calls the swamp. And this is, you know, not something Trump is fighting. This is something that um, is, uh, you know, that this corporate government complex uh, where there's just this mutual enrichment uh, of the, you know, multi-billion dollar budget that we uh, spend uh, every year. So uh, Trump appears to be part of that um, and doesn't seem to care. Uh, with his hotels in Istanbul and Manila and his ties to the Russians and the Chinese, his kids. It's all very autocratic. He'd be much more comfortable in Saudi Arabia. Actually, he was more comfortable in Saudi Arabia. We, we have empirical proof. So anyway, I just wanted to share some of that, just this developmental struggle that is going on. And, um, you know, as an integralist, we want to be friendly to all of it. Uh, at least to the degree that we see that it's there. And these are our countrymen and women. And um, there is a, um, a calling as we move into integral consciousness to take a deep breath and feel the, um, the, the, the peace of the truth, the sort of positive vibe. We can even feel it up our chakras. <laughs> Uh, and that's, that's uh, you know, we use um, this thing we're already interested in, current events, this unfolding of history that people talk about for a good long time, uh, and we're seeing it in real time. So uh, what fun, and, uh, and what could be more important? Uh, so, all right, thank you so much, and um, I'll do this again. Sorry for the interruptions. I did this a little on the fly, and I had some stuff going on, and... Oh, well. Take care. All right. And now here's segment number three, the uncivil war, where I look at polarization as a natural function of the conflict that seems to be built into the evolutionary engine, uh, the conflict between stages of development, particularly when a new stage comes online. And I make some comparisons to the original civil war which is where traditionalism was fighting an emergent modernity. And now we have traditionalism and modernity fighting an emergent post-modernity. And uh, that ain't pretty. Here's segment three. Hey, folks. Jeff Salzman here. For those of you who just watched the live video I did, I'm re-recording it because I forgot to hit this button. Hey, here I am. Uh, <laughs> I'm learning on the learning curve with these uh, Facebook videos, but welcome. Glad you tuned in. And today I want to talk a little bit about an integral view of this phenomena that we hear so much about, uh, political polarization. And, you know, developmentally speaking, political polarization is a function of two or more developmental levels that are just sort of naturally in conflict. That seems to be built in to this evolutionary um, engine, uh, where at least in part, we fight our way forward. Uh, we also, the other F word, our way forward too, the, on, the, on the other side of the street, but the fighting is important. And, um, and so, you know, we see that the two poles that are fighting in America is, of course, the traditionalists on one side and the postmodernists on the other side. And we tend to divide the modernists up between us. So that's the amber traditionalists, the orange modernists, and the green postmodernists are in this sort of ever more entrenched polarity. And, you know, we saw it in action again this morning with the results of the special election in Georgia 
where, you know, any idea that this craziness from Trump was going to really affect this sort of binary choice that people have to make. I mean, I think uh, Republicans have in some measure lost confidence in Trump and, you know, the reasonable ones are turned off. But still in a binary world where they have to choose one or the other, um, they voted according to the party. And so the Republicans, you know, voted for the Republicans and the Democrats for the Democrat. And it really was uh, kind of a big snooze fest other than that. And, you know, we see this in social science with how people live and work in, uh, you know, bubbles and news and entertainment. I'm in a certain bubble and, and we want to listen to what we already agree with. And, you know, eventually we can get to where the extremes can be unhinged. I mean, you know, we saw that, I guess it was just a week ago, the shooting in Washington, D.C., where the congressman got shot at the baseball practice, Scalise. And uh, it's only a week ago. Uh, but, um, you know, it's really astonishing that more of that sort of thing doesn't happen. But it happens and it happened. And, of course, it happened by a lefty. Of, you know, he was a Bernie Sanders supporter. And, you know, in the tribal wars, that's sort of a hit against the left. But, you know, let's not kid ourselves. Uh, liberals hate just as passionately as conservatives do. Uh, and you know, it might be a different flavor of hatred. It may be a little more complex in a certain way, but it's just as passionate. Uh, I had a friend called me the, the night of the shooting and said, I have to confess something to you. When I heard about this shooting of Scalise, I wanted him to die. I hoped he killed him. And he said, I sat with that for three or four minutes and nurtured and enjoyed that thought. And eventually, you know, he caught himself through self-observation and realized this is no way to be. And, you know, it's like we used to say at Naropa, the mind is a terrible thing to watch. But there it is. It's sort of running and we can observe ourselves and we see that there is that tribal part of us, you know, that warrior part of us who is rightly gratified when the enemy, when the enemy falls. And you're damn right. We hope they're dead. We'd be irresponsible not to. It's a zero-sum game. Uh, you know, you lose, we win. And that strat is still online for all of us. And, and you know, we, we, it, 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 it's just right there when we need it or when we don't, maybe. But we see that, you know, it, it's just a, a small move from somebody's different to their wrong and from wrong to their bad and from bad that they're evil. And then, you know, from evil you get to, where Sean Hannity was last night, where he talks about how the deep state who's against Trump represents a, quote, clear and present danger to the United States, which is kind of fighting words. But that's the point. So we have new layers online that stop that sequence. And, you know, like my friend, we catch ourselves and we feel guilty. Uh, but that, um, that, uh, move to polarization uh, just continues. And uh, social science says that it's currently at a worse state, the worst since Reconstruction, which is the period after the Civil War. And that's very interesting because the, the, the conflict today, the polarity today is a, a struggle, as I said, between the postmodern, postmodernism and traditionalism. Uh, in the Civil War, it was also a struggle between memes, but here it was a struggle between traditional agrarian, um, you know, farms, slaves, pious, high society, social kind of mannered kind of thing, quick to rile, pugilistic. And that was the South. And then the North was modern and industrial, uh, pluralistic, uh, urban, uh, less mannered in a certain way, but higher moral development. It's, it's so interesting that once we get machines that can do the work of slaves, then all of a sudden it's just outrageous that we should have slaves. And that's sort of one of those, uh, I think, miracles of development that we just naturally move into that kind of thinking. Uh, but that was, you know, uh, by no means decided back then. And, uh, you know, of course, that struggle was decided by a war that I think people don't realize 
just how brutal it was. I, 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 I sometimes marvel at the, well, the Civil War uh, cost 2.5% of the population uh, their lives. That's how many people died in that war. And if you extrapolate that number, one in 40, uh, if you extrapolate that to our population today, it would be as if we were to fight a war to save the Union that would cost 7 million lives. And, you know, is that a good idea? You know, we think about this great Lincoln and, you know, and, and, and certainly he was a great man. And, you know, I'm pro-Lincoln, I think. We probably would have fought it out sooner or later, and it might have been more of this World War II kind of a situation uh, if we had fought it later in our history. But, um, you know, if, if all everything had gone right, I, I can't help but think that maybe it would have worked out. You know, the North would be Scandinavia. You know, we wouldn't have the South sort of continuing to try to pull us back or slow things down. And the South would be, you know, I, I, I've been trying to think of what the country is it. Turkey or Brazil or, you know, we're, you know, struggling to move into modernity uh, and, you know, some backward motion. But at any rate, the these great culture wars between stages of development uh, have been throughout history. I mean, if we think of the culture war before the one between the Civil War, the traditional and modern, we had the emergence of traditionalism several thousand years ago, where the great monotheistic religions came in and, you know, the, the God was all of a sudden in his heaven. And there was a great persecution of all things magic and occult. I mean, if Trump thinks he's in a witch hunt now, um, we had real witch hunts uh, into the 1700s. And we see it going on today uh, with the fundamentalists in the Middle East blowing up the statues of the Buddha and, you know, uh, burning down each other's mosques and that sort of thing. Uh, but today, the meme struggle is between conservatives and, uh, as I said, and progressives. And, and it's not the same struggle that Democrats and Republicans had 50 years ago or 40 years ago. And we hear this said a lot that back in the day, Reagan and Tip O'Neill, you know, had dinner together and they golfed together or whatever they did. And that's true. We still had progressives and conservatives, but they were all center of gravity, traditionalist modernists. After World War Two, uh, you know, there was this, you know, great period of the greatest generation where it was still, you know, all for capitalism and, and growth, but still nationalistic, religious, you know, JFK, RFK, these people, Martin Luther King, they weren't for gay marriage, you know, uh, and, uh, and that's just the way it was. And so we have now not just, you know, a sort of conflict of polarity within modernism. We have this whole new, um, Developmental structure, postmodernism, which is only 50 years old. You know, there are the people who sort of, you know, Mencken and Mark Twain and those people who sort of had a beat on it early. But for the most part, it's the greatest generation's kids who saw the world very differently. And, you know, so, you know, the, the, the feeling there is uh, cool, ironic citizens of the world embarrassed by America's sins, suspicious of capitalism, corporations, uh, part of the sexual revolution, gender fluidity, politically correct. Uh, and that is just anathema to the earlier stages. And that's one of the reasons for Trump's enduring popularity among the people on the more conservative side of the street is that it's not so much as they agree with him or are proud of him, it's just that he's willing to fight their enemy, which is this, you know, new stage of development that is causing them no end of grief. So the good news is, is that each time we fight one of these new civil wars, or as I call this one, the uncivil war, it's, you know, we're all being so very incivil to each other. 
But we're doing it with tweets and sound bites now, not muskets, muskets and cannons and swords and, you know, that sort of thing. So that's progress. Um, and it doesn't end, you know, it continues to go. And we have, for those of us who are in the integral movement, integral consciousness is really the beginning of the end of these conflicts in the sense that, you know, one of the central tenets of integral theory is that we see the piece of the truth in all of these um, earlier stages. And, you know, so we get where the Tea Party guy's coming from. We get the Chamber of Commerce. We get Black Lives Matter. We do our best, at least, you know, the social justice warrior, the vegans. We want to understand, we want to be multi-perspectival and feel in to all of these earlier stages. Not so that we can evolve, evolve into a mushy middle, but so that we can just have a bigger playing field, that we can have more inclusive perspectives that include the best of, you know, both poles or all poles, if you will. So, um, you know, I don't want to get into this, but there's an interesting question here about the, is there a conflict between green and integral? And the short answer is yes. And there's plenty of time to talk about that in further uh, of these podcasts. So I will, and I have. In fact, if you want to know more of my thinking on this, you can go to my website, dailyevolver.com, and particularly to a episode I did a while back called Gridlock is a Stage on the Path. And, um, and that is, um, that's there, and as is all kinds of other things. So I think that's it. So thank you so much for listening, and um, I will see you next time. I think I like these things, so I'll be back. Take care, folks.